Introduction Welcome to the Abarta Audio Guide to Swords. This guide, produced in conjunction with Fingal County Council, will lead you through swords, where amongst all the modern buildings of the growing town, you can still discover echoes of the past. Music will indicate the beginning and end of each track, and there will be instructions throughout that will lead you to the next stage of the tour. Swords is positioned within the fertile lands of Fingal in North County Dublin. The name Fingal is derived from Fin Gaul, meaning the territory of the foreigners, in reference to the Vikings who settled here. The region is steeped in archaeology, history and heritage, and as the major town in the region, Swords has a fascinating story to tell. Recent archaeological excavations have revealed lots of new information about the town. At Mount Gamble, just to the south of Swords, where the modern shopping centre stands today, archaeologists made some remarkable discoveries. They found the graves of some of the ancient residents of Swords, both male and female, young and old were buried here. The burials can give lots of information about life in Swords in the past. Some of the burials had clear evidence that the person died a violent death, perhaps in battle or by murder. Other burials revealed the terrible, tragic hardship of life, where infant mortality and death in childbirth were all too common. Interestingly, some of the people were buried according to pagan tradition, while others were buried according to the Christian manner. These burials may give a glimpse of a time when Christianity was a new faith in the region, as people began to adopt new beliefs and expressions of worship. The burials all dated to the early medieval period, between 550 to 1100 AD, and give a fascinating insight into the lives and deaths of some of the ancient inhabitants of Swords. Over time, the streets of Swords have changed to reflect its history. Today you can still see echoes of the circular enclosures that once surrounded the monastic site by the curving nature of some of the streets. The long main street that runs from north to south is a legacy of the great thoroughfare that led to the medieval castle. We will begin our tour by discovering the story of St. Columkill's Well, whose crystal clear waters gave the town its name. This was the well that was believed to have been blessed by St. Columkill in the 6th century. Because of the exceptional clarity and purity of the water, the well gave the town its name, Sword Colmkill, meaning the pure spring of Colmkill. Local folklore tells how Colmkill took a mighty leap from his monastery down to the well and that his footprint 
is still visible on the stone step of the well. St. Comkill's Well in Swords was believed to have curative properties that were especially effective for sore eyes. As well as its religious connotations, St. Columkill's Well was one of the principal water sources for swords up until the recent past, with people using the handsome iron pump there to fill buckets so they had pure water for drinking and cooking. St. Columkill, also known as St. Columba, is one of Ireland's three patron saints the other two being St. Patrick and St. Bridget. Columkill was born in around 521 AD in Garton, County Donegal. He was part of the exceptionally powerful O'Neill family who ruled Ulster. When he was very young, he was given in fosterage to a priest to be educated. After studying at the monasteries of Moville and Clonard, Columkill chose to turn his back on the material world and chose a life of prayer instead. He was ordained and became a monk at Glasnevin. He spent the next 15 years preaching and teaching in Ireland. Because of his own natural gifts, as well as the good fortune of his birth, he soon gained ascendancy as a monk of unusual distinction and his name Calmkill reflects that, as it means Dove of the Church. Calmkill formed a monastery on the tiny island of Iona and began to teach the Gospels in the wildest glens of Scotland and the farthest Outer Hebrides. He is believed to have died there in 597 AD and his feast day is celebrated on the 9th of June. Although stories of Columkill are linked with swords, some scholars have recently begun to question whether he did establish the monastery here, believing it to be a much later foundation, and the stories of Columkill at swords are part of a later retelling and hagiography to ensure that the burgeoning monastery with its growing settlement became ever more entwined with the Columban Church. To continue the story of St. Columkill and Swords, continue to our next stop, St. Columba's Church and Round Tower. Local legend states that St. Columkills chose this site on a ridge of high ground near the river to found his monastery in the 6th century. He appointed St. Finon the leper to be abbot. However, the monastery doesn't appear in the historical records until 965 AD, when the death of Alil Macmanach, the Bishop of Swords and Lusk, was recorded in the annals. The monastery is also recorded as being burned by raiding Irish war bands in 994 AD. The monastery here at Swords features prominently in the story of Brian Boru and the Battle of Clontarf. Many believe 
that the Battle of Clontarf was fought between the Irish warriors led by Brian Boru against the vicious Viking invaders. However, the true story of Clontarf is a far more complicated tale and Vikings fought on both sides of the battle. Brian Boru is perhaps one of the most well-known figures in Irish history. From a relatively minor monster clan, Brian had led his Dal Kosh dynasty to the very summit of power in Ireland. He decided to wage war on Leinster and Ulster to expand his territories even further. To do this, he needed a powerful ally, and in early medieval Ireland, none was as influential as the church. Brian donated a large amount of gold to Armagh and made it the most powerful religious centre with dominion over all the other monasteries of Ireland. He was repaid by Armagh's support and he was honoured with a new title Imperator Scotorum, the Emperor of the Irish. However, these halcyon days were not to last. The Leinster King Male Morda rose in revolt and launched an attack on Meath. Male Shachnal, the King of Meath, sent a request to Brian for assistance against the incursions of the Leinster King. Brian gathered his army of Munstermen and his Hiberno-Norse allies from Limerick, Cork and Waterford and launched punitive raids into Leinster. He marched his armies to Dublin, but found his way blockaded. Low on supplies, he returned to Munster for the winter. The King of Leinster used this time to gather allies. He combined his Leinstermen in a formidable confederation with the Hiberno-Norse from Dublin and their ruler, Citric Silkenbeard. Along with the powerful Viking Jarl Sigurd of the Orkneys and Broder and his men from the Isle of Man. As Brian marched to meet this new threat, many of the other Irish kingdoms in northern Connacht and Ulster decided to stay out of the coming fight, biding their time to see who would come out on top. Brian gathered his loyal veterans from Munster including the Hiberno-Norse, along with the men from South Connacht and forces from Meath under their king, Maelle Shochnall. The stage was set for one of the most famous of Irish battles, the Battle of Clontarf. The Battle of Clontarf is believed to have been fought on Good Friday in 1014. The precise setting for the battle is the subject of much scholarly discussion. It is described in the annals as the Battle of Clontarf Weir, leading to speculation that it was fought along the tidal shoreline of Clontarf. The battle was said to have lasted all day, with many killed on both sides. King Citric had wisely decided to remain in Dublin to protect the city, but many of the key figures of the era fell during the fighting. The men of Munster 
eventually won the grueling contest. They pushed the Leinstermen and their allies back against the sea, giving them no room to manoeuvre. Jarl Sigurd of Orkney was killed during the vicious fighting, and Brian's 15-year-old grandson, Turlach, died in the final stages of the fight. The annals record his death. He went after the foreigners into the sea when the rushing waves struck him a blow against the weir of Clontarf, and so he was drowned. A number of the Hiberno-Norse warriors from Dublin fled back to the town. The King of Meath, who had been watching the battle unfold, decided to unleash his fresh men to enter the fray. The Meath men blocked the Dubliners' route back to the town and massacred the disordered and exhausted Hiberno-Norse. Throughout the battle, the elderly Brian had been praying in his tent. Broder, the leader of the men from the Isle of Man who was fleeing the battle, saw a last chance for renown and victory. He gathered a number of his followers and charged into Brian's tent, killing Brian and his retainers. Broder paid dearly for his opportunism. It is recorded in an Icelandic saga that he was captured by a relative of Brian, a man called Ulf Hrede, meaning Ulf the Quarrelsome. He brutally killed Broder, the saga says. Ulf the Quarrelsome cut open his belly and led him round and round the trunk of a tree and so wound all his entrails out of him. And he did not die before they were all drawn out of him. The Battle of Clontarf was a victory for the men of Munster, though it came at a terrible cost. Their great King Brian had fallen at the very hour of his victory, along with his son, Murrah, who fell in the thick of the fighting, and his grandson, Turla, who was drowned. Brian and his son, Murrah, are believed to have been brought in a solemn funerary procession to the monastery at Swords, where they lay overnight before being taken on to their final resting place at Armagh. The Round Tower is the only feature remaining at the monastery that would have been seen by those in Brian Baru's funeral procession. The tower dates to the 10th century and stands around 26 metres or 85 feet tall. Round towers are often found as part of high-status monasteries in Ireland. It is believed that round towers were constructed as bell towers, as they are known as Cligtiach in Irish, which translates to bell house. They would also have been visible for miles around. And as such, they would have acted like a signpost to weary pilgrims on the route to the Monastery of Swords. 
The top section of this round tower was reconstructed in a later period. The cross on top of the tower was said to have been put there by Reverend Henry Scardville, Vicar of Swords from 1682 to 1704. The large stone belfry, known locally as the Square Tower, is thought to date to the 14th century. If you look closely at the southeastern corner of the medieval tower, you can see an early medieval inscribed grave slab that was reused in the construction. This tower was the bell tower of the medieval church that was demolished to make way when the present church was built in 1813. This church was constructed in the Neo-Gothic style and is still used as a place of worship for the Church of Ireland community. When you are ready, leave the grounds of the ancient monastery and continue for a short walk heading eastwards along Church Road until you see the handsome old vicarage on your right-hand side. Though today it has been converted into apartments, the old vicarage on Church Lane is thought to originally date to around 1675. Historical records tell us that in 1735, the old vicarage was described as being ruinous and very much out of repair. Joseph Espine, the Vicar of Swords at this time, proposed to restore and repair the old vicarage on the understanding that he would claim back three quarters of the money expended and was allowed to rent the house at the bargain price of five shillings. Later in its history, in 1872, the old vicarage was bought back by Swords Vestry and they carried out a new programme of renovations and modernisation, including the addition of a new wing on the northern side of the house, designed to accommodate carriages. Despite its refurbishments and alterations in the 1990s, when it was converted into apartments, the old vicarage remains one of the most historical buildings in Swords. Leaving the old vicarage, continue heading east along Church Road and take your next right-hand turn onto Bridge Street. When you walk across the bridge, take a moment to read the plaque on the pillar at the end of the bridge. This is dedicated to Peter Wilson, a swordsman who lost his life in the fighting during the 1916 Easter Rising. On Easter Monday 1916, a call for reinforcements was brought to the 20 volunteers in Swords. The men from Swords were led by the 26-year-old Richard Coleman. The men first went to the General Post Office, but were sent from there 
to reinforce Captain Sean Houston, who was in command of D Company, of the 1st Battalion of the Irish Volunteers. They occupied the Mendicity Institute, a shelter for the homeless of Dublin. At 40 years old, Peter was the oldest of the Irish volunteers at the Mendicity Institute. Most of the fighters were young men in their 20s, and even their commander, Captain Sean Houston, was only 26 years old. This band of Irish volunteers were involved in ferocious fighting as they tried desperately to stop the British forces from advancing along the quays. As the fighting intensified, the Mendicity Institute became a key strategic target for the British Army, who launched a massive assault and hammered the building with rifle and machine gun fire. As the British soldiers closed in, they began to hurl grenades into the building. The Irish volunteers could only try to catch the grenades and throw them back before they exploded. Two of the volunteers were badly wounded doing this. And as the ammunition began to run out and casualties started to mount, Captain Houston decided to surrender the position in an attempt to save the lives of his men, though some, including Peter Wilson, were killed during the fighting. The remaining volunteers, including the surviving swordsmen, led by Richard Coldman, were rounded up and disarmed. They were first sent to the grounds of the Rotunda Hospital for identification, then marched to Richmond Barracks to be court-martialed that day. From there, they were sent to Kilmainham Jail to await sentencing. Richard Coleman was sentenced to be executed, but that was later commuted to penal servitude. Richard and a number of his comrades were shipped to Dartmoor Prison in England, where Richard was placed in solitary confinement before being transferred again to Lewis Prison in Kent. In July 1917, all prisoners were released and given a grant of £100 from the National Aid Fund of America. Richard and all the other prisoners donated their grant money to form the New Ireland Friendly Society and Richard was appointed as a trustee of the society. His belief in Irish independence never wavered and he was soon re-arrested as he continued to train and drill volunteers. He was sent to Mountjoy Prison for six months and took part in the hunger strike that cost the life of Thomas Ashe. Richard Coleman was transferred to Cork and then Dundalk Jail where he took part in another hunger strike. He was released in 1918, but soon after, he was re-arrested again, along with all the other leaders of Sinn Féin. 
Richard was transported to Usk Prison in Wales. In November of 1918, an epidemic of influenza spread through the prison. And Richard Coleman, weakened by confinement, hunger strikes, and the harsh life he had led since 1916, quickly succumbed to the illness. He died of pneumonia on the 7th of December 1918. He is remembered by a plaque on the main street of Swords. As we cross the bridge, you can enjoy a great view of our next stop, Swords Castle. Swords Castle isn't actually a true castle at all. It is in fact Ireland's best remaining example of a medieval episcopal manor or bishop's palace. Rather than a defensive fortification, Swords Castle was designed as a residence for the Archbishop of Dublin, one of the most important people in medieval Ireland and as an administrative centre for the large medieval borough. The Manor of Swords is listed as part of the property of the Archbishops of Dublin in a papal bull by Pope Alexander III in 1179. The Archbishop of Dublin around this time was John Common. He was chaplain to King Henry II and was rewarded for his service when the King recommended him to replace St Lawrence O'Toole as Archbishop when St Lawrence died in 1180. John Common thus became one of the most important and richest men in medieval Ireland. He was given the revenue of thousands of acres of Dublin's hinterland. The Manor of Swords was a powerful and wealthy place. Some of the privileges of the manors included having their own courts of justice, where they were allowed to try all crimes except for stalling, rape, treasure trove and arson. Punishments were administered in public and the guilty could find themselves painfully and publicly humiliated in pillories and stocks. Positioned just outside the castle walls to ensure that they would be visible to all. The manor also enjoyed free customs and freedom from certain taxes and services. They also had freedom to impose their own fines, have their own coroners, rights of salvage, to maintain their own fairs and markets and regulate weights and measures, all of which ensured a steady source of income. Common is thought to have constructed the castle by around 1200 AD. The castle represents at least 500 years of redevelopment, redesign, alteration, reuse and adaption, reflecting the changing fortune and whims of the bishop and the architectural fashions of the time. 
Swords Castle was likely to have been attacked during Edward Bruce's invasion of Ireland that began in 1315. Edward was the brother of the Scottish King Robert the Bruce and they decided to launch an invasion of Ireland to open a second front in the wars against England. Although the historical records don't specifically give an account of an attack on swords, the castle was in a very poor state shortly after the invasion, which suggests it too was ransacked. It was described in detail in 1326 during the inquisition into Archbishop de Bickner, who was under investigation on charges of misappropriating funds. There is a hall, a chamber for the Archbishop annexed to it, of which the walls are of stone and crenellated like a castle, roofed with shingles. There is a kitchen with a larder, whose walls are of stone and roof of shingle, a chapel with stone walls and a shingle roof. There was a chamber for the friars with a cloister, now thrown down. Near the gate is a chamber for the constable and four chambers for knights and squires, roofed with shingles. Under these, a stable and a bakehouse. There was a house for a dairy and a workshop, but these are now thrown down. In the haggard, a grange constructed of poles and covered with thatch. A timber granary roofed with wooden boards. A byre for housing nags and kine. These easements, they extend at no value for nothing is to be got from them, either by letting or otherwise, since they need great repair as they are badly roofed. The archbishops that followed de Bickner very rarely stayed in Swords Castle. However, there were significant building works at the castle in the later half of the 15th century, with the addition of the North Tower castellated walls and the reconstruction of the gatehouse. This shows that although the archbishops may reside elsewhere, the castle was still considered important. However, as the centuries passed, the castle again became neglected. In the late 16th century, Dutch Protestant settlers occupied the dilapidated castle. Their hard work in restoring the building was noted at the time in a letter by Sir Henry Sidney to Sir Francis Walshingham in 1583. He described how he allowed the 40 Protestant families to inhabit the castle after they had fled religious persecution in the Netherlands. And Sir Henry declared that it would have done any man good to have seen how diligently they worked and re-edified the quite spoiled old castle and repaired it. And how good and cleanly they, their wives and their children lived. 
The castle next came to prominence during the Catholic Confederacy Wars of the 1640s. These wars were a struggle between Irish Catholics, known as the Confederates, and the forces of King Charles I. For who would control Ireland? The Confederation used Swords Castle as a base to galvanise their forces. One of the Confederacy leaders in the region, Luke Netterville of Corbulus, near Donabate, issued the proclamation that the gentlemen of the County of Dublin should assemble at swords upon pain of death. They raised an army of approximately 1,200 Catholic men. They faced the governor of Dublin, Sir Charles Coote, who raised a regiment and marched out to fight the Confederacy. They defeated the Confederacy at Swords in 1642 and then won further battles to secure the northern approaches to Dublin. In reward for his service, Sir Charles Coote was granted much of the land forfeited by the defeated Confederates. In its later history, Swords Castle came into the possession of the Cobb family who used the castle and lands as an orchard and farm until Dublin County Council purchased the land from the Cobbs in 1985. Archaeological excavations in the castle revealed a number of burials, probably dating to the 16th century, around the time the Dutch settlers made the castle their home. The excavations also revealed a medieval pavement formed from highly decorative floor tiles. Some of these tiles are now on display at the National Museum of Ireland on Kildare Street in Dublin. Standing in front of the castle, you can see the grand southern range of the castle with some of the key buildings. The gatehouse is flanked on the left-hand side by the Knights and Squires Chamber. This was originally a three-storey building and was named from a description in 1326. The building provided accommodation for the armed militia, formed by Archbishop de Bickner to preserve the peace and for apprehending all traitors and their abettors. The gatehouse itself is on an axis with the main street of swords. It originally housed the accommodation for the constable, who was responsible for the running of the castle, until the 15th century, when the constable's tower was constructed. The gateway was designed to be both grand and imposing, as well as a practical defence. To the right of the gateway, you can see the chamber block. This consisted of three floors of accommodation. A typical arrangement of 13th and 14th century Norman manorial residences. It contained a solar, private chambers for the archbishop 
where he entertained the guests and slept. It also had a series of vaulted undercrofts below, where food and goods were stored. The chapel was positioned to the right of the chamber block. This grand room, with its fine windows and lofty ceiling, was a display of power and wealth. Today, the castle is managed by Fingal County Council. When you are ready, please safely cross the road to the modern county hall. The handsome modern county hall was designed by Buchholz McAvoy Architects and was completed in the year 2000. It was built on the site of Swords House the former manor house of the Taylor family. Historical records reveal that the Taylors were an Anglo-Norman family who came to Swords in the 13th century. They originally came to prominence in Beverley in Yorkshire, England, where Edward Taylor was noted as the chief falconer to King Henry III. Edward's second son, Nicholas, settled in Ireland at the end of the 13th century and it was Nicholas's grandson, Walter, who was first associated with swords. Walter appears in the historical records when he was granted a lucrative licence from the powerful Marquess of Dublin, Robert de Vere. Walter was allowed to purchase fish in every harbour of the County of Dublin and to export them to Chester and Liverpool. In 1403, Walter's son Alexander is recorded as owning a mansion in Swords. The tailors of Swords made many advantageous marriages over the years that helped to increase the family's wealth and power and they became noted figures in the region. However, the fortunes of the Taylor family began to ebb following England's renouncement of Catholicism in the 16th century under King Henry VIII. The Taylors wished to remain Catholic, a dangerous practice during this period. The association with the Catholic faith led to John Taylor rising in rebellion alongside Luke Netterville of Corbulus as part of the Catholic Confederacy Wars. As we have already discovered during the Swords Castle track, this rebellion ended in disaster for the Confederates when they were defeated at Swords Castle in 1642. Following their defeat, John Taylor was exiled from his lands and was relocated in Connacht. His brother Nicholas was recorded as the owner of Swords House in the Civil Survey of 1654. Throughout the 18th and into the 19th century, the house remained in the possession of the Taylor family. 
1833, Elizabeth Taylor married Hosiah Forster. Their son James Fitz Eustace Forster inherited the house. He rose through the ranks of the British Army to the position of Colonel. And in his retirement, the kindly bachelor became a much-loved figure around swords. During World War I, the British Army were stationed at Swords House, leading it to be known locally as the Billet. The house was then owned by Thomas Long and later the Feenan family. Unfortunately, Swords House burned down in the 1980s and it was acquired by the County Council. When you are ready, keep the County Hall on your left-hand side and take the first left onto Chapel Lane. Take a short walk along this lane until you get to our next stop, St. Columkill's Church. St. Columkill's Church was constructed in around 1827 after the land was donated by James J. Taylor of Swords House. The Roman Catholic Church was built in a neoclassical style, though it has been altered a number of times in its history. It was extended with a two-storey vestry added in around 1879, and the façade of the church was altered in 1924. The church was renovated in the early 1990s and today it still offers a place of worship for the people of Swords. In the porch of the northern doorway of the church you can see a bowl-shaped medieval font with vine leaf ornamentation. This is thought to have been brought here from Kilossary. There are a number of notable figures buried within the graveyard that surrounds the church. The tall standing stone commemorates Andrew Kettle, the close confidant and supporter of the famous politician Charles Stuart Parnell. Like Parnell, Andrew Kettle was also an Irish nationalist politician and a founding member of the Irish Land League. The Land League was an organisation dedicated to tenants' rights and the abolition of landlordism. They sought to reduce the crippling rents imposed by landlords and to defend those who were threatened with eviction for refusing to pay unjust rents. They wished to enable tenants' farmers to own the land they worked on. The struggle became known as the Land War and it eventually led to the Land Purchase Act of 1903 and the Land Commission that allowed Irish tenant farmers to buy out their freeholds with government loans over 68 years. In 1916, Andrew Kettle 
died at the age of 83 and was laid to rest here at St. Columkill's Church at Swords. An obituary in the Cork Examiner extolled his virtues, stating that The passing away now of this great veteran nationalist will be deeply mourned by Irishmen in every quarter of the habitable globe. You can also see the grave of Father Mulcahy, who died in 1912. He was notoriously strict and is said to have chased courting couples up the laneway. If he caught or recognised them, he would read out their names from the altar during his sermons at Mass. When you are ready, walk back the way you came along Chapel Lane. Turn left onto Main Street. As you walk along Main Street, you may notice that many of the buildings still retain some of their original character, particularly in the upper floors as the ground floors were often altered to accommodate shop fronts. Although most people associate the lockout of 1913 with Dublin City, Swords played an important role in one of the most significant industrial actions in Irish history and the main street became a key location in the struggle for workers' rights. Swords was described in newspapers at the time as a hotbed of trouble and principal rallying ground for the Larkinites. At the time, Swords had a population of around 900 people who were mainly employed in dairying, farm labour and transport. Frank Moss was a very active union leader in Swords and he played a key role in the lockout and the farm labourers' dispute. The farm labourers' dispute was the result of a campaign by Jim Larkin and Frank Moss to improve the pay and conditions of farm labourers in County Dublin. They were so successful that the farm labourers of Swords developed a reputation as the most militant and heavily unionised of all County Dublin. The Union based themselves in a building on Main Street in Swords, naming it Liberty Hall. Frank Moss was said to have delivered speeches from an upstairs room to the gathered crowds standing on Main Street. They demanded higher pay and that all agricultural labourers be paid the same wage for the same job. A view strongly opposed by the County Dublin Farmers Association, as every farmer set their own wages and conditions for their workers, meaning that some workers in the locality were paid different rates for the same job. The issues could not be resolved, and by the end of July 1913, an estimated 600 workers were on strike in the Swords area alone. The strike started peacefully, 
though the Royal Irish Constabulary moved quickly to reinforce the police in swords, adding another 50 policemen in case of trouble. By the middle of August, rather than see their entire harvest go to waste, the Farmers Association and landlords agreed to the demands of the union and offered better pay and conditions to their workers. However, the outbreak of the massive strike known as the Dublin lockout meant that the workers in Swords had to begin protesting again. The Dublin lockout began when the Dublin tramway workers went on strike when over 300 of their co-workers were dismissed for joining Jim Larkin's Irish Transport and General Workers Union, the ITGWU. The strike caused outrage amongst the employers of Dublin and over 400 of them demanded that their employees sign a pledge never to join the ITGWU and to refrain from sympathetic strikes. This angered the workers and they refused to sign the pledge. The employers retaliated by enforcing a lockout of their workers and by bringing in labour from Britain and other parts of Ireland. The County Dublin Farmers Association decided to join with the employers in Dublin and threatened to dismiss any farm labourer who refused to leave the union. In retaliation, the farm workers in Swords and across County Dublin staged a mass walk-off and went on strike. They harassed and impeded any labourers who continued to work for the farmers, deriding them as scabs. They stopped the carts full of the farmers' produce, denying them the chance to sell their goods at markets. This caused a severe shortage of vegetables, potatoes and milk in Dublin, leading to dramatic rises in the price of food. In an unintended consequence, life for the families of the strikers in Dublin City became increasingly difficult, as prices for basic food escalated beyond their reach. The situation in Swords became increasingly tense, and by the middle of September, crowds of strikers had begun to smash the windows of non-union workers. The death of two strikers in Dublin and a 17-year-old youth, Patrick Daly, who was shot by the police in Finglas, brought matters to a head. 300 of the strikers from Swords, accompanied by a pipe and drum band, marched into Dublin to hear Jim Larkin's speech, where Larkin stated that the police were already responsible for the murder of their comrades, Byrne and Nolan. And only a few hours ago, they shot down young Daly at Finglas like a dog. The people should not give any chance to the police who are thirsting to continue their murderous assaults. Despite Larkin's attempt to try and defuse the impending violence, 
The situation in Swords was spiralling out of control. Around 200 of the Swords strikers were involved in a riot in Dublin on the 21st of September and attacked the police, driving them back by hurling stones, bricks and bottles. The police regrouped and dispersed the crowd by repeated baton charges. Many were injured on both sides. In Swords, the Union men were taking an increasingly harder line with scabs and boycotted establishments like pubs that served non-Union workers. As the situation became ever more dangerous, things came to a head on the evening of October 9th, 1913. During the evening, a large herd of sheep and cattle were being driven through swords, accompanied by a police escort. As the animals began to pass down the main street, a group of strikers drove the animals back the way they came, causing chaos as the animals scattered. The police regrouped and managed to identify and arrest one of the strikers, a man called Christopher McKittrick. But as the police tried to lead him to the station, they were blocked by approximately 100 strikers. Despite being bombarded with stones and bottles, the police managed to arrest another striker, Patrick Rourke, as they retreated back to their barracks. The strikers hurled rocks and bricks at the barracks, smashing the windows. As the police were penned in their barracks, the strikers rampaged down Main Street, smashing windows of shops deemed to be anti-union. The police were reinforced and launched baton charges that dispersed the mob and ended the riot. Over the next few days, an uneasy and tense peace descended on swords as more police reinforcements arrived and established control over the village. A number of the strikers were put on trial. Some were forced to pay a heavy fine of five pounds, more than a month's pay, while others, including union leader Frank Moss, were sentenced to prison and hard labour. The farmers and landowners brought in a number of workers from other parts of Ireland and took a tougher stance with the strikers, evicting many from their houses. With the onset of winter and under the threat of eviction and starvation, many strikers returned to work. Some farmers refused to take their former workers back and so the mothers, wives and daughters of the strikers took their place and worked in the fields picking potatoes for half the pay their men used to earn. The collapse of the strikes by the farm labourers in Swords left many unemployed and destitute. But the people of Swords maintained their strong determination and support for the union and Swords remained a hotbed of union activity and support. 
When you are ready, continue down Main Street until you get to the Old Borough National School that you will find on your right-hand side. Before the Act of Union in 1800, which joined the Parliament of Ireland to that of Great Britain, Swords had two representatives in the Irish Parliament. However, when the Act of Union was signed, the Irish Parliament was abolished and it was merged with that of Britain into a single Parliament of the United Kingdom. To compensate the Borough of Swords for losing its two parliamentary representatives, a grant of £15,000 was made. It was given to a board of trustees called the Governors of the School at Swords. The trustees included the Lord Chancellor of Ireland, the Archbishop of Dublin, the Dean of Christchurch Cathedral, the Dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral, the Provost of Trinity College Dublin, and the Vicar of Swords. The Governors commissioned the famous architect Francis Johnston, who was responsible for many of Dublin's key buildings, like the General Post Office, to design the school. It was completed by 1809 at a cost of £1,800. The rest of the money granted to the trustees was invested and brought in £700 a year in interest, ensuring a steady fund for the school. The governors of the school set out strict regulations stating that the hours of attendance are from 9 in the morning until 3 in the afternoon, with an interval in that time of half an hour for recreation. The master and mistress of the school are to make weekly returns to the superintendent of the school of the children who absent themselves on any day in each week. Those children are to be returned as absent who are not in the school before half past nine and also such as though they come in proper time are unfit to be admitted into the school for want of cleanliness in their persons or from labouring under infectious disease. Unlike most schools today, there were financial incentives for the children. Every third month, up to six children in the school could be awarded two shillings, six pence for diligence and good answering. Even greater awards came each year. All students of apprentice age were examined and the ten most deserving were offered funded apprenticeships. The student judged to be the best answerer received a bounty of £20 and the second best, £15. These were considerable sums indeed at the time. There was only one schoolmaster and one schoolmistress to educate the children and both were paid a salary 
of £50 per year. However, according to contemporary reports, the Board of Trustees for the school were pleased with their efforts. A favourable report from 1812 reveals that the school had 127 boys and 134 girls in attendance who were instructed gratuitously in reading, writing and arithmetic. Although the school was intended to educate children of both Protestant and Catholic faith, by 1830 many Catholics were dissatisfied with the school. As a result, in 1831 another national school was opened in Swords to cater for the Catholic population. The Old Borough National School on Main Street continued to educate children in Swords up until the year 2000 when it finally closed. Today, the building has been transformed into the Old Borough Public House and Restaurant and the school moved on the 6th of April 2001 to its present location in the Old Vicarage Orchard between the River Ward and St Columba's Church. Conclusion As you can see, although Swords has grown dramatically in recent years, it still retains at its heart its ancient heritage and pride in its history and traditions. You can discover more wonderful examples of historical buildings around the town, like the old Carnegie Library that opened in 1908, where you can meet the knowledgeable local historians of Fingal genealogy. Or spend time in the Fingal County Archive Service to discover more of the stories of the men and women of Swords. Visit fingal.ie for more information. We hope you have enjoyed this audio guide that leads you through the colourful history of Swords. This audio guide was produced in conjunction with Fingal County Council and with the kind assistance of Heritage Officer Jerry Clabby and Bernadette Marks of Fingal Genealogy. Gunnairi on Boherlat. May the road rise to meet you.